Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Capital Club podcast. I'm your host, Brian C. Adams. Tune in weekly to hear from top industry leaders as we discuss relevant topics in the world of business, investing, health and wellness, geopolitics, and more. To learn more about the show, visit excelsiorgp.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club podcast. Today I have with me Peter Capelli. Peter is a renowned academic and author in human resources and management. He is a professor and director of the Center for Human Resources at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. With expertise in human resources practices, employment policy, and talent management, Peter also serves as a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He has authored influential books on topics such as job scarcity, managing older workers, and talent management. And you often write for the Wall Street Journal, which is where I found you. And I want to thank you again for joining us today. Thank you. So I want to jump right into kind of we're recording this in you know the end of June 2023. And there is still this post-COVID return to work, return to the office, hybrid, remote, narrative, dynamic occurring, and nobody seems to quite be able to get their arms around it. Would you maybe touch on the journey that you've had in terms of speaking with executives and then teaching people who are potentially going to be supervisors over the last three or four years and how that tapestry of conversation has changed? Sure. I think this is the biggest natural experiment that has happened in anything to do with the workplace in my lifetime. It was quite a remarkable thing. And it's easy to forget how scary things were in 2020 when we were wiping our groceries down with disinfectant. We didn't know what was going to kill us. And I think the story is reasonably simple, but it helps to think about it from the perspective of the company. So I wrote a book about this called The Future of the Office, and employers had no choice but to have white-collar workers, if they could, work from home. The employees were grateful for this because, if you think about it, the alternative was 
you weren't going to have a job. And the companies were grateful because if we think about it, there wasn't going to be a company left, right? If people couldn't work. And there was a sense too that we were kind of holding not just the, our companies and our employers together, but the country together by going back to work, but doing it from home. So everybody was all in on this and everybody was pitching in. I think employees were trying to do the right thing at, at home. And I think there was pretty good evidence. It worked incredibly well, better than we thought. However, the problem is that after a certain amount of time, it becomes the new normal and employees adjusted to this. And the employers understandably were frustrated with their plans to try to bring people back. And so they just stopped saying anything about it. And as a result, the employees felt like, well, you told us everything's going fine and we got used to this and why can't we just keep doing it? And the employers were thinking, look, as soon as this clears up a bit, we're going to, everything will come back to normal. The problem is they didn't say that. And so the employees now feel that you're taking something away from us, which is pretty big and pretty important to us. And we've grown accustomed to it. So it's sort of like any other organization problem of change, right? And I think what the employers have to do is first they have to demonstrate to employees that there is a good reason for coming back. The evidence is pretty clear from, we've actually been studying this problem well before COVID. We've had remote work at least since the smog problem in Los Angeles in the 1970s. And the evidence is pretty clear from the employee's point of view that except from your work-life balance, which may be way better, everything about your career is worse when you're out of the office and other people are in there. You get promoted less quickly. Your engagement with the company declines. Your commitment to the organization is worse. Everything is worse for you at the workplace. And increasingly, we find evidence that job performance is for sure not better. And there are lots of things that are harder for the company to do. So I think it's not surprising employers want more people back. It's also not surprising employees are resisting this because they've gotten used to the old model. Employers can get people to come back. They don't have to put a gun to their head, but they do have to make the case as to why it's important and recognize this is a process of change in people's head that they have to manage. I think you hit on one of the big issues, which is once you give somebody a benefit or give a population of people something, it's very hard to take it away without them responding poorly. On a related note, there has been this push and pull of who has the leverage in the marketplace, the employer, the employee. You alluded to early COVID where it was very clear employees were scared. Everyone was scared, but certainly from an employee standpoint, they were very nervous and they're willing to do whatever employees were asking of them. That shifted pretty quickly where it felt like employees started to have the empowerment within that relationship. Where are we today, do you think? And, and just also given this macroeconomic environment and where employment numbers are very strong, we're not sure if we're going to be in recession or not later this year. Things seem to be getting better. What is the state of play in your mind? I think employees, if you think about the balance of power, employers have all the power, right? And even now, employers have far more power than employees have. If you think about it, is it more important to the company if I walk away or is it more important to me if the company walks away? It's more important to me if the company walks away. So 
in terms of absolute power, the employers still have far more power than the employee has, individual employees have. What is different, though, is that we shouldn't try to have an employment relationship which is based on power. Because what you want your employees to do is to act in your best interest as an employer. You don't want this to be an exercise where if you don't do what I say, I'm going to fire you, right? I mean, that's a terrible way to run an organization. So for the employers, the issue was, okay, we got these employees who really seem to want to keep working remotely and we want to kind of keep them happy. So what should we do about it, right? That's the issue. And as we said before, they just kind of ducked that issue by not trying to manage the return to the work workplace more carefully, right? One of the things that employers, and maybe br more broadly, don't get is that simply because employees say they will, th they will quit if they don't get X, Y, or Z, doesn't mean they actually will. So the evidence on this is that maybe 7 or 8% of the people who say they will quit if I don't get X, Y, or Z actually end up going through the motions of trying to quit. Quitting is pretty hard. You got to find another place to go first, right? And lots of people want to quit all the time, and they don't. They're irritated at their employer, and they feel like quitting, but they don't because it's hard to find another job. It is easier to quit now, not just because the job market is good, and it hasn't been this good since the 1960s for employers, and em for employees, rather. And employers kind of got used to the post-Great Recession as normal when there were tons of people just beating your door down to work for you. So employees say they want to quit all the time, but they don't do it because it's quite difficult to do. So that doesn't mean that the power has shifted simply because employees say they want to quit. I always love this one survey I saw um, before the pandemic that 58% of employees said they would quit to take a job next door for exactly the same rate of pay just to get rid of their current boss. Now, they don't really mean that. I mean, it doesn't mean like 60% are going to quit tomorrow, right? So I think that has been kind of misleading. You hear those statistics almost every day from some survey, and that doesn't reflect the reality of people actually being willing to walk out the door. Yeah, I think you referenced how you can have a healthy relationship employee-employer. In my experience in law school and also being a small business owner, fear is a really good short-term motivator, but not a very good long-term relationship builder to get people motivated to do things. So given that, and not to age you, but you've been doing this a long time, how has your approach, style, rubric shifted in terms of teaching business students to be supervisors, employers, managers over the last, call it, since the Great Recession, maybe since this dynamic that you reference has been in play? Yeah. So I think after the Great Recession, it was just hard to get anybody's attention on the employer side to say, look, you, you need to think about the needs of employees a little bit because you want them to be engaged. When people were saying, how high do you want me to jump? And nobody was quitting and people were showing up because they were afraid. They're afraid they're going to be fired and laid off. It was hard to get their attention to say, look, you got to pay attention to what employees want if you really want them to be engaged. It's not that hard to get people's attention now, right? When they're struggling to fill 
positions. And the other problem is they don't want to make it easier to fill jobs and keep people by paying people more, right? That's, you could pretty easily do that. That's my headache when people say there's a shortage of people. Well, if you ask them, could you hire who you want if you're willing to pay more? Well, yeah. Well, then you don't have a shortage. I mean, a shortage means that even at the market price, you can't fill your get what you want, right? Now, something could be more expensive than you want to pay, and it doesn't mean that it's in short supply. Diamonds are not in short supply. They're just super expensive, right? So I think now people are more open to trying to figure out what to do, and I think they generally get, for example, on the issue of retention, the single biggest factor that holds people to organizations are social ties. That we may think it's money. Part of the reason we think that is employees lie to us when they quit. They always say, wasn't you, boss. It was really, they just made me a better offer. It's often the case that they hate you, boss, but they don't want to say that, right? So I think they understand that. The problem is trying to get supervisors to build relationships with their direct reports is pretty hard to do, especially if you've hired people into supervisory roles who don't want to do that and who aren't good at it. And you've never trained them. I saw a statistic the other day that was almost 60% of supervisors said they had never had any training in management. So saying, okay, we understand we got to build relationships with employees. Let me call the supervisor and say, build those relationships. Well, we haven't trained you how to do it. We haven't hired the right people. We promoted individual contributors rather than people who could manage teams. Now it's kind of hard to do, right? So the problem is it's hard to do these things kind of at the last minute the way you might with just raising your pay. Why is that? You've written about this before, and I think it's fascinating, this lack of managerial training within some of these organizations. If you go back the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, you look at General Electric or some of these large blue chip consortiums that had incredibly well vetted and robust managerial training systems that created these incredible leaders why has that fallen off? Is it just a allocation of resources has gone somewhere else? Is it cultural? Well, it started in the 1980s when companies started these pretty massive white collar, excuse me, restructuring layoffs. And then once you had all these people laid off, then you were asking yourself, if we're laying everybody off, why are we spending all this money developing more people? We're trying to get rid of them. So they cut their staff. And then during the 90s, they discovered there was this huge oversupply of highly qualified white collar people out there you could just hire. And so then they persuaded themselves that you could just get the talent you want by hiring from the outside. And then, now that's hard to do, starting up a whole system of internal promotion and advancement and training and development again is really expensive and really hard to do. There are some quirky financial reasons for this that I've written about recently, and that is the way financial accounting works, which is what investors see, is they really don't like employment costs, of course, because they think those are fixed costs, even though there's nothing fixed when you can lay off people in an at-will country, but that's what they think. And of course, for financial accounting, employees can't be assets. If employees were an asset, because you can't be an asset if, unless you own something. If you don't own it, it's not an asset. So your employees can't be assets. If we thought about them as assets, layoffs would be incredibly stupid. Could you imagine a company saying, we're going to lay off our computers. We're just pushing them out the door and goodbye, right? 
And because of that, you can't invest in employees. So training can't be an investment because you can only invest in assets. So from financial accounting, training isn't an investment. It's just a current operating expense that falls under things like coffee, right? So part of the problem is for investors, training dollars just look like wasted money. And that's part of the story as well. So at this point, the problem is the companies have abandoned their training. They've kind of persuaded themselves that they shouldn't do it anymore because they're just going to lose people if they train them. At this point, that's ridiculous. If you look at what you have to pay to hire people on the outside, right? So the guess is now in the U.S. is it's going up to almost 30%. You could cross the street, work for an identical company next door, and they pay you a 30% premium to cross the street. You can make more money by changing jobs and doing the same thing than you're getting by getting promoted internally. So, I mean, we're kind of devolving on the employer side to just craziness where we don't develop anybody. And the apparent costs of this are so big, you would think some employers would start thinking about it more carefully. Wait, can you repeat that stat? You said about the 30% premium. Yeah, so let me give you, yeah, let me give you two statistics, which are kind of mind blowing. Back in this earlier generation, before 1980s and before then, companies filled, the big corporations anyway, filled over 90% of their vacancies from within. At the moment, depending on the estimate, they're filling only about 20 or 25% of their vacancies from within. So the reason hiring is such an issue is they're trying to fill 75% of their openings, not just entry-level jobs. There, there are kind of no entry-level jobs anymore. They're just filling everything by going outside and trying to hire. So hiring is a hugely expensive thing. We know that internal promotions work better. Those people perform better. Yet we're having to hire to do everything. And the estimates of what it costs you to hire somebody now are wildly off. You often hear this when you ask people what are their turnover costs and they say, figure it off here, $4,000. And $4,000 is just the administrative costs of bringing a new person in. It's not the training cost. It's not the performance cost. It's not the lost knowledge cost. And then when you look at how much more you have to pay somebody when you go outside to get them, the figure we had been hearing was about 20% more uh, than your current employees in order to go outside and hire somebody. And the figure I'm hearing now is closer to 30%. So that is to, if you're an employee, you could cross the street and make 30% more money just by going to work someplace else. In some places, this is just bizarre, like in nursing, travel nurses, who are the people who work for agencies who are plugged into hospital vacancies, they make 50% more, in some cases double, what the nurses who are working there make. So why would you ever want to be a nurse in a regular job when you can be a travel nurse, fill those vacancies? and make 50 to 100% more money. I mean, it's just kind of crazy. It's so interesting. I've been traveling up quite a bit the last few weeks for work. I was in the Delta Sky Lounge last night in Atlanta, and I saw probably almost 50, a cohort of 50 people who were wearing nursing outfits that were clearly like concierge travel nurses that were coming off a shift somewhere. And they were, they, 
treated pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I get it. Like they were in the Sky Lounge having a glass of wine after working in wherever they were for the last few days. And they were probably going home and taking a long weekend for the holiday. And so to go deeper, I mean, that's fascinating, the numbers and the premium that people can get. But is it a function of demographics in terms of are are there just there's just not enough people to fill those positions? No. Okay. I mean, you think about nurse, we're talking specifically about nurse. No, no, just in general. general, I mean, how is it that people can, on one hand, there is this 20, 30% premium to go somewhere else. But on the other hand, we keep hearing about how real wages within a certain demographic cohort have not moved meaningfully since the 70s. Right. They're falling. Right. They're declining. Right. So the reason companies complain so much about hiring is because they're trying to fill by hiring from the outside, positions that you would have thought would be filled from within. So we go outside and try to find somebody who knows our systems and who knows our clients, and we struggle to find those people. Of course you struggle to find those people. You wouldn't expect to find somebody who knows your systems, your accounting protocols, your software, your client. on the outside. If you want to amuse yourself with this, just look at job ads and look at how incredibly specific. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Thick they are, even for hourly employees. Must have five years of experience with this equipment, and they can't find people to do it at the wage they want to pay, right? So that doesn't mean there's any shortage going on. That means you've got ridiculous job requirements, and you're not willing to pay what the market price is for those requirements. It's not. It's nothing to do with demographics. The U.S. population is still growing. The U.S. labor force is still growing. There is one problem in the macro sense, which is pretty important and we're ignoring. It's got nothing to do with demographics, though. It has to do with productivity growth. Productivity growth in the U.S. has been pretty flat for the last decade. By some measures, it's the lowest productivity growth in modern time. So if productivity is not growing, then for the economy to grow, you need more people to do it, right? So if you look at the U.S. economy now compared to World War II, the U.S. economy is at least four times bigger. The U.S. population is only twice as big. Well, how did that happen? Because productivity was growing, right? But if you think about it in your company, if you want to double size... And you don't get better at anything. You have to double your workforce. And that, at some point, that's untenable. And we just can't be a country that has to 
grow our population through immigration or whatever just enough, enough to keep up with what we hope the economy will grow in without any productivity. We've put together a free resource available exclusively to our podcast listeners. If you're looking for strategies to safeguard your portfolio against inflation, you want to check out our latest guide on the best alternative investments to consider. Head to ExcelsiorGP.com slash download to learn more. And this dovetails really nicely into an area that I wanted to explore with you, which is this advent of AI and people think it's going to be this huge disruptor into the workforce. Very similar and echoes conversations that happened in the 90s about the internet. And they thought there's going to be this huge boom to productivity. And it really wasn't. It didn't deliver on that hope that people had. And to your point, the assembly line and mass manufacturing had a huge outsized impact on productivity when you compare it to the internet, internet, which blows my mind, frankly, just because of how we use technology today. Do you think that will be the case? And do you agree with that thesis and, and kind of on the look back for those impacts? Well, the decade, this is kind of astonishing, unless you think about it a little bit, the decade with the fastest productivity growth in U.S. history was the 1930s. Now, why was that? Well, it was largely because of the innovations associated with electricity. The country started to get electrified in the decade before, but we were figuring out all these ways to use electric motors and such. And of course, it's also the case that in the 1930s, productivity grew because the weaker businesses all went closed, right? If you weren't pretty effective, you were out of business, that raises productivity as well, right? The biggest innovations in productivity have frankly had to do with management. Assembly lines were not a technology per se. They were simply a way of organizing work that was already kind of out there and just in a different way of doing it. The internet was an incredibly important innovation. It created lots of new tasks and new ways of making money, online retail in particular. And much of the internet was about creating something that didn't exist before, which was new ways to send messages and pictures to each other, right? And that's all useful, but it didn't increase productivity. It wasn't supposed to, right? The big thing about data science innovations, when we say AI, basically we're talking about data science in various ways, is that it it has the possibility of doing that. Before we got to the large language models, the chat GBT stuff, the problem with data science was that It was way better at making decisions about uncertainty, making predictions, basically, than individuals could do. It's still true. The problem is to build a data science model takes a lot of information, a lot of data, and a lot of time. So if I wanted to get better at, for example, hiring in my company, would I get better by building a decision science machine learning algorithm to figure out who to hire out of the recruits. Yes. Would it be better than what I'm doing now? Way better. Would it be cheaper? Probably way cheaper. The problem is the fixed costs of doing it are really big. And unless you're a company that has tried to hire lots of people, so we have lots of data, and by lots of data, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of cases. If you don't have that, you can't build it. And even if you have it, it's really expensive to build. So it hasn't happened. The other thing to bear in mind is 
that we haven't had a lot of productivity increase, even in things that we could have done, frankly, I think because labor was so cheap. One of the things that did get improved during the pandemic is that we got rid of toll collectors on the highways. Why do we have toll collectors? To take a dollar. I just was traveling in Delaware. I saw the first toll collector I had seen since 2019. They brought some of them back. But that we're going to pay that toll collector more, quite possibly, than they're going to take in a day, a dollar at a time. I mean, it's just insane. Why didn't we do that before? I think it was because labor was too cheap. We didn't bother. But labor, if it gets more expensive, then we have an incentive to try to find ways to replace people, particularly in the front lines, with technology. In the fancier tools like data science stuff, the problem is, will people actually use them if we create them? My sense is they won't. My quick little thought experiment with managers from around the world says, if you could use an algorithm score to hire somebody or go with your gut, which one are you going to choose? They're going to go with their gut. Even if you explain to them it's not nearly as good, they don't want to use it if we give them a choice, right? So I think we could do a lot to improve productivity right now. We haven't done it, I think, because labor has been too cheap. If it gets more expensive, we might see more of it. And on the data science side, on the white collar side, we could do it now, except it's been pretty hard to do. ChatGBT, large language models, those could be really big in white collar productivity, particularly at the lower level. It's not really going to, it shouldn't replace thinking because there's no judgment and in thinking involved in those, in the material produced by ChatGBT and other LLM systems. So it's not going to like take the place of lawyers, but it might well replace a lot of paralegals who are just gathering the cases that might be relevant and assembling them for the lawyers to build a brief around. So this, in my mind, begs the follow-up question. Will this dynamic, this trend that you're just referencing, which I largely agree with, just go to increase the disparity that we see in the marketplace today between high income earners and then everybody else? Yeah, no, that's a great point. I think ChatGBT stuff is a white collar, largely a white collar phenomenon, right? All the other AI stuff has been targeted largely elsewhere, the original data science stuff. And Yes, it, it hits the simplest tasks first. The thing about ChatGBT is that it, it is not something like reading x-rays machine learning does, which supplements a particular task. ChatGBT can take over categories of white-collar tasks, writing simple responses, gathering information. So the lower end of the white-collar communication tasks it can take over. And so if you think about back to the the law example, is not going to take over lawyers' jobs because gathering that information is only part of what a lawyer's job is, but it probably will require a lot fewer people who are doing the lower end stuff, paralegal stuff. We don't need nearly as many of them because with ChatGBT, you can assemble that body of cases much faster. It almost reminds me of this... <laughs> argument that you hear playing out a lot of whether or not globalization was actually good for the lower end, lower wage employees, right? There was this whole narrative that we were pitched of, we open up 
cheap labor with mature markets, it will be this rising tide and it will benefit everybody. That really has yeah. not been the case. They were very much winners and losers over the last, call it 50 years when globalization occurred post-World War II. This sounds like a very similar conversation that's taking place today. I think that's a great point. Those arguments about trade were arguments about the system. The global economy will get better, but it said nothing really about who gains the most from that. And I think pretty clearly what happened there was that unskilled people in the developed world really lost a lot, right, in the short term. Now, in the long term, of course, the argument is, well, countries can redeploy their assets and things when we could change by investing more in our employees, people who would have been low-skilled manual workers. But that's a kind of theoretical argument. And as John Maynard Keynes pointed out, in the long run, this whole generation is dead. And what happens to them in the short, right? And that's the adjustment costs are not trivial. And the globalization pushback came because countries did not try, in the developed world, did not try to cushion that change uh, by dealing with the people who are going to be the losers. And I think you're right. In this current generation of AI stuff and the chat GBT stuff, there will be overall good for the economy. There will be occupations that really are losers in this area. And it's going to be the lower skilled white collar work, just as automation, you know, hit the lower end of production skilled work, you know, earlier in the, cent- the previous century. Yeah. I mean, I just think about, I've got two boys, they're 10 and seven. We're very fortunate. We're an affluent family. They go to this incredible private school here in Nashville and they are learning to code at an early age to get exposure to the ability to leverage technology. My wife and I are both white collar professionals. And so we can help kind of guide them into where to focus their efforts to increase their earning capacity over a long period of time. And it just seems like that gap is only going to become larger, frankly, as people who don't get those opportunities, don't have those dinner table conversations, it's going to be harder and harder. Yeah. And I think the other thing, not to depress you, but I got two boys in their 30s and I was zero help in getting them on careers that were going to work out for them. And some part of that is it's just hard to know. For example, the other group most likely to lose jobs as a result of ChatGBT stuff are computer programmers. Mm -hmm. Because ChatGBT can pull up all the code that might be useful for you to build anything. Now, computer programmers still need, there's still a need for them. You can't just literally pick up all the code that will solve your problem. But it can pick up code that you can use to assemble together to build what you need to solve problems, right? So for lower end computer programming tasks, you're not going to need nearly as many of those folks, right? So it's really hard to predict what the future will bring on these things. And we've also not been very good, as we were describing before, as a country in helping people get the skills in the short term that we think will be useful. And it's still hard for kids leaving college to get jobs, harder than you might think, unless you're an IT person who happens to have the skills that are needed that year by IT companies, right? If you're not in that situation, even nurses, we think, for example, huge nursing shortage. There's no shortage of nurse graduates. There's a shortage of experienced nurses. 
the big nursing operations don't want to hire nurses who don't already have experience. So what is in short supply in the workplace is giving people that initial work experience because no employer wants to do it because it takes a while for people to start becoming productive. They would like to skip that period. That makes perfect sense, except that all employers want to skip that period. And as a result, we got a huge problem in delivering work-based skills. It's not academic skills. It's the ability to learn how to actually do work, take academic skills and translate them into something useful. We're just not good at that. Employers don't want to do it. We haven't figured out a way to solve that problem. Well, when you can get a 30% premium across the street, it's hard to have loyalty either way, right? I mean, it works both ways. If employers are going to put those resources to work to train folks, they would expect some type of loyalty or the ability for them to stay in the organization long-term. And if that's not there, you're at a little bit of an impasse. Well, I think the employers could do much more than they are. And there are some companies that do have internal mobility. I don't think people want to quit companies unless they can make an enormous gain someplace else. And if they can make an enormous gain someplace else, it's because you're not responding to the market. But if we promoted more people from within, you could keep them longer. And a lot of training doesn't require you putting people into classrooms where you got to pay for their time. The most important learning that goes on in organizations is work-based experiences. So I said before that we don't know how to do this. Well, that's not quite right. Apprenticeship programs are the way to do this. The problem with apprenticeship programs is getting employers to be willing to do them. Apprenticeship programs, the old ones, which were largely union-based, meant that you were paying in part as you went because you're contributing as you're learning. This is how consulting companies work, right? They take kids right out of college. They're going to turn them into accountants. They do it over five years. They put you to work doing simple accounting stuff. You have some classroom training, but mainly you're being supervised by somebody who's been there like only two or three years ahead of you doing the simplest tasks and then more complicated ones. It's how we learn to be plumbers. It's how we learn to be carpenters. And there are ways you can do that. The union model was even better because you're paying union dues the rest of your life so the unions could support those training programs. But now those union programs are largely shrinking down because unions are shrinking. And we can't quite find a way to encourage companies to even provide the work-based learning, which doesn't actually cost money, but uh, you do have to be willing to make an effort for it to happen. Companies could fix that one in a heart. Yeah, if they had the will. I, I agree with you. Well, Peter, this has been terrific. I want to thank you for the time. It's been a lot of fun. I really enjoy your writings in the Wall Street Journal. You're always very topical and, and in-depth on those. And, and so I appreciate it. Let's leave with maybe a positive thought. You're always interacting with younger people. What is one of the things that makes you the most hopeful or excited <laughs> about incoming managers, supervisors, and business leaders in today's world? Well, I think the good news uh, for older people is that this generational stuff is all kind of nonsense. In fact, it's been debunked I, by the- I completely agree. Yeah. National Academy of Sciences did a report on this a few years ago, that young people today are not recognizably any different than young people were 10 years or 20 years before. They do respond in the moment to what's going on in the economy. 
just as we would have tried to do when we were younger. Each generation coming in is pretty optimistic and is willing to to take opportunities if we give them to them to make things better. I think they come in with all the right motivations. We just have to make sure we don't ruin them. One of the cool things about today's work environment is that you can often work alongside people two or three or four generations broad. And there's some older folks that I work with, and I asked them this recently, like, what do you think about this whole narrative about, you can use anything, right? I'm a millennial, Gen X, millennial, whatever. And this guy just said, it's total horseshit. Like every generation says the same thing about younger people. It's just this kind of rite of passage that he thinks is complete nonsense. And here, so here's the happy note on that. The evidence suggests that the most productive and happiest work groups are where you mix up those generations because they're much more inclined to want to help each other. They don't see themselves in competition with each other the same way. And what's cool is this is the first time really in our kind of work history where younger generations are teaching up to older generations in the workplace, which I think is a really fascinating dynamic. Yeah, we have right some different experiences we can share. Yep. Well, Peter, I want to thank you so much for joining us. If people are interested in connecting with you, obviously they can look at your writings in the journal, but is there a place where they can contact you or connect with you or learn more about your work and subject matter expertise? Well, you know, the advantage of having a last name Capelli with two Ps, unlike Adams, you try to find an Adams, it's hard to find Brian Adams, Mm -hmm. but there's no trouble finding Peter Capelli on the internet. I have a website at Penn and most of my work probably pops up there pretty easily. So that's the beauty of the search engines. Terrific. Pretty easy. Yeah. Well, thank you. One final question we ask people that come on the show. Do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? Coffee. Coffee in the morning. In the morning. Okay. Yeah. You're my kind of guy. That's my... Yeah, that's... <laughs> that's great. Peter, thank you again for joining us. I hope you have a wonderful summer. We look forward to staying in touch. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation on the Capital Club podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to like, rate, and leave us a review. And please follow us on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 